welcome to another exciting episode of Skeptics and Seekers. I'm your host, David the Skeptic, and I'm joined by three, count them, three other guys to my right. Uh, a uh, person that needs no introduction, uh, but will give himself one anyway, uh, Mr. Chris Date. Chris, the Chris Date. Or uh, <laughs> should I call you the Chris Date, or will Mr. Chris Date, sir, be sufficient? I think I need something a little bit more honorific than that, um, but uh, that's okay. I'll, I'll forgive you this time around. Okay. Uh, Chris uh, will tell us a little bit about himself in a minute, but uh, to Chris's right is David Russell, a voice that is becoming very uh, familiar to this audience. David, welcome back. How are you doing? Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Okay. And uh, to... I, no, I don't remember who's to the left and to the right. Um, it's all made up anyway. Uh, in the other direction, coming from left field, a voice we all know and who needs no introduction, Mr. Dale. I don't think I'm allowed to say his last name. Dale. How you doing, oh. Dale? Hey. Uh, yeah, glad, glad to be back. Uh, thanks for inviting me on, David. Okay, yes. Um so today, uh, we're going to talk about hell. Uh, it's, I've been looking forward to this conversation uh, for a while. Hell is one of the most important uh, one of the most important issues, I think, in the Christian atheist debate. I think it is also one of the most underrated conversations. I think that Christians uh, devalue the hell proposition and how important it is. Uh, to people who have um, a tenuous faith or people who have walked away from their faith. Uh, and I think that we don't always talk about it uh, as an important part of our walking away from faith. But today, we've got three Christians and me uh, to talk about hell, and we've got three different views on hell. This is also uh, one of the challenges of hell. There are a number of views on hell. There are more views on hell than what we uh, have represented on this panel. Uh, and so hopefully we are going to sort the subject uh, of hell out a little bit. And so I'm going to uh, throw it to David Russell first to just give a brief um, uh glimpse of his take on hell and for him to uh just reintroduce himself to the audience a little bit david well hello everyone um i'm just here basically to listen more i'm kind of like doing my research in this field it seems like this is the direction uh i'm going <laughs> no matter what i do i can't escape this conversation within the past like couple months so uh yeah i'm david russell i'm from the host i'm a host of uh proselytize or apostatize and I run the website, no, well, not the website, Facebook page, uh, uh, Virginia Apologetics Union. And that's pretty much it. I take the view of uh, eternal conscious torment. Uh, I lean towards that view. But like I said, I'm more like a listener here and seeker, as David would say, and want to hear what date has to say here. All right. And with that, I am going to throw it over to Dale. Second of all, um, Dale, uh, just remind the audience, uh, you know, we always have new people, uh, who you are, what you're doing these days, uh, who you used to be, uh, <laughs> that might be uh, worth mentioning, uh, and a little bit about your uh, hell view. 
Sure. So, so I, I used to be David's former co-host, uh, uh, the Christian or the Seeker and the Skeptics and Seekers there for a year and a half, as most of your fans will know. Um, since leaving SNS, uh, I'm doing my own uh, podcast called Real Seekers or the Real Seeker Ministries, um, where we you know, continue on my, my research and try to share my take on various issues or have some guests and that sort of thing. Um, so in terms of my view of hell, um, I would say mine is, is a mainstream view. It's not really that idiosyncratic. Um, it, it's the traditional view, uh, but I take what's called the quarantine model. Uh, so it's advanced by people like Gary Habermas, J.P. Moreland, uh, J.P. Holding, for example. Um, yeah, so, so it's hell is basically a quarantine zone for, for, for people that aren't saved. Okay, and uh, now we have the Mr. Chris Dates, sir. <laughs> I told you I wanted more honorific than that. No, I'm, I'm kidding. And uh, thank you for um, uh, reaching out to me last and very much least. I'm Chris Date. I'm the regular host of the Rethinking Hell podcast. Uh, people can find that at RethinkingHell.com or they can just go to iTunes or Spotify or... Google Podcasts or whatever, and I'm also the regular host of the weekly YouTube live stream, Rethinking Hell Live, which people can find at youtube.com slash rethinking hell slash live. Um, the, we at Rethinking Hell uh, are what are called conditionalists. We believe in conditional immortality, a part of which is um, referred to as annihilationism. So we believe that um, the whereas the traditional view, like that represented by Dale and J.P. Holding, whom I've debated, and Gary Habermas and others, whereas in, according to that view, when God resurrects the lost, the unsaved, he will make them bodily immortal, and they will live physically forever uh, into eternity. We believe, however, that Scripture very clearly and consistently teaches that bodily immortality is something that God is only going to grant to resurrected believers, the resurrected saved, and that the resurrected lost will be raised still mortal, and their punishment will literally be death and death forever. They will never live or experience anything ever again after they are um, capitally punished in hell. So that's my view. That's rethinking hell. Uh, I could say a lot more about myself, but that would bore people to death. So I'll leave it at that. Okay. And I will just say uh, that my view of hell, even though I'm not really in this fight, but I think that my view actually represents the, the largest view of uh, uh, of Christians and atheists uh, both, uh, that hell is uh, in the Bible presented as eternal conscious uh, torment, uh, and so all will be resurrected. That's kind of the uh, the academic uh, Dalian view, but I, I think that it leaves tradition in that um, whereas Dale would say, uh, yes, but it's there's no conscious torment per se, um, uh, a, a a place of of torment. It will just be torment simply because it is without God, um, and that is very different from the um, the uh, inferno uh, type view. Uh, so that said, uh, I want to start with uh, David. Uh, David, so you are the only one who hasn't really stated a view. But you've been a Christian for a while, and you've been doing this uh, for a while, and you've been, had a lot of hell conversations uh, for uh, for some time. And so I just want to start with your impression, 
of what what is the quote-unquote traditional view of hell. Everybody wants to claim the traditional view, um, <coughs> and that may not be a terribly useful term. So as you understand it, uh, what view are, are you hearing from people, and what view did you kind of grow up uh, with thinking that, yeah, this is, this is what hell is? Well, I grew up with hellfire and brimstone, you know, you know, the fire inferno and hell is hot, you know, a famous pastor once always told me that, you know, hell is hot. Um, I also, I also came to my own conclusion, though, that it is separation from God. So that's kind of like where I land. You know, I don't think, I don't think God annihilates people. I, I just, that's what I've always thought. But you know, as I, I like, I said I haven't I haven't done a ton of research. I've listened to Chris more on Calvinism than I have on uh, hell. So, <laughs> um, so like I said, my view is is separation from God. It 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 kind of reflects more of what you said as far as separation from God. That that's the torment. Okay, all right. Um, and um, Dale, have you always been a quarantinist? That's that's not a good word. I thought I would try it, but it, once I said it out loud, I realized that was a mistake. Um, have you always have you always held the quarantine view of hell, or have you, like so many of us, held the uh, eternal fire and brimstone at yeah. that point? Yeah, no, I I definitely had the traditional view. I mean, I grew up watching Bugs Bunny cartoons, and oh, that's pretty much what what hell is um but once i started thinking about it and actually seeing what scholars have to say and trying to come to grips with it i I very quickly realized that that's not the view of hell so you know there's a difference between torment and torture i I reject the torture chamber model like dante's inferno and that sort of thing but yeah the, the torment or the the anguish that comes as a result of being separated from from god as as david russell said there so let me let me just ask you um, from a from an academic perspective because I don't know the answer um, from the academic perspective uh, and try to try to think beyond your your particular circle which I know is pretty large. Um, do you think that most academics uh, take the um, quarantine view, uh, or is is there a split among academics, or is the split uh, between academics and lay people? So, so yeah, I think I think definitely among lay people, the the majority view is is the the traditional hellfire, the the torture chamber model of hell. Um, among academia, I, I I do think that's minority view. Uh, again, I haven't taken like a survey or something like that, but um, yeah, I think that it's either my view or something like Chris's view, like an annihilationist view, the, the, or universalism is also becoming. It's a that's a minority view, but it, it's growing. You know, Rob Bell's and stuff like that. So, Chris, I uh, want to come to you last on this. What is your uh, impression uh, of the split? Uh, what what is in fact the dominant view among uh, average people, uh, maybe versus uh, academics? Uh, and have you always held the view that you hold? Um, I think that Dale got the split fairly accurate. I don't know that the 
um, literal fire and brimstone traditional view is indeed the majority amongst lay people, but at the very least, the doctrine of eternal torment uh, with um, resurrected immortals living forever in hell, that is the um, traditional, that is the most popular view amongst lay Christians. But I think that Dale is right about academics like me. Um, I think that within very conservative academic circles, the majority probably remains uh, a variation of the traditional view like the quarantine view that Dale is here representing. Um, but once I think you get outside of the most extremely conservative academic circles uh, and you get to a more diverse um, population of academics, that's where I think that um, uh, my view starts to become dominant. In fact, a uh, Christian um, apologist and theologian named James White, host of The Dividing Line, uh, he's from the Alpha and, Omega, Alpha and Omega Ministries website, he's recently said a number of times that amongst New Testament scholars, my view is the majority. Now, I don't know if that's true, um, but that is the impression that I'm starting to get. Um, as for how long, you know, whether or not I've always held this view, I became a Christian uh, when I was about 20 years old after having been an atheist um, my whole life prior to that point. And for uh, early on in my Christian walk, I discovered that there were cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses and other pseudo-Christian groups like the Seventh-day Adventists who um, held to what I now know was a view like mine. And, uh, and and at the time, I learned how to defend th that the Bible teaches eternal torment with such people, and I was convinced that it did, that, that, that the Bible teaches it. And so, for, you know, the first 10 years, approximately, of my Christian life, um, I held to the traditional view and defended it. Uh, but about 10 years ago now, um, without getting into the big, long story right now, I was convinced kicking and screaming that the Bible does not teach that view and that it instead teaches the view that I now hold. And the reason I say kicking and screaming is because I very much did not and do not want to believe in the view that I hold now. It would be much more comfortable for me as a very conservative uh, Christian and academic to um, toe the party line, as it were. Um, but as I said, my I, I, I was too committed and am too committed to the authority of Scripture to continue to hold to the traditional view. So, uh, a question for uh, the panel. We'll take it uh, one at a time. Uh, everyone seems to uh, have come from some form of traditional view and has at least uh, at some time held the position that hells eternal conscious torment. Uh, and you seem to uh, believe that at least a pretty good portion of the population believes that as well. But everyone on the panel is convinced that that is wrong now except for me um so accepting me for this question i would start with david russell why do you think so many people believed and or still believe this wrong idea of eternal conscious torment where did they get it from because it's been taught it's been taught for hundreds of years but, now but why why was it taught well, I, I, you know, I don't know. I think it just, you know, the popularity ideas from, you know, Dante's Inferno and, and, and these ideas throughout time, and especially probably in the medieval times, uh, just transferred over. And, you know, I, like I said, you know, freedom of religion is also a, a double-edged sword in this country. You know, on one side, it's necessary for a free society, but on the other side, you can have a backyard preacher that has done no study in his life, 
and spread a, a false idea about something for years and grow, you know, mass a huge following. So I, I think that's probably where I'm at. But it had to start somewhere. Dale, where did, where did this start? Uh, so I, I know you well, so I know you, I, I do think that it, it starts. There, there is language in the Bible that if taken literalistically, it talks about hellfire. It talks about, you know, meant like anguish and that sort of thing, being tormented in, in hellfire. So um, I guess it came later on when later Christians sort of misunderstood what the Bible was saying in those types of verses. And they took it very literalistically and said, oh, OK, you're we're going to be tortured and then they start speculating on well how would they be tortured how would a murderer versus a rapist be tortured and you know liars are going to be hung by their tongues stuff stuff like that so i think it developed with a misunderstanding of what the, the bible texts were saying okay but we had some of the smartest people who were closest to the religious texts uh early on and i would think that if the religious text meant something different than that they would have been able to say uh no it doesn't mean that you idiots <laughs> this well, is not well, they, this is not what we they, wrote <laughs> well they, they were i i have yeah. quotes from early fathers that take my view i know for a fact chris has quotes from people like ignatius of antioch that take his view so these views were out there but would, you, would you say that only s- smart people had the true view of it early on and only the stupid people had the eternal conscious storm of view i mean it seems like i mean would would you at least acknowledge that it's reasonable to see it the other way uh so you're talking about like the lay Christians in the first century AD, I, I, I'm not sure that they, I don't think they did see it the way that you, that the way that you or the later Christians did. Um, don't forget. Yeah, go ahead. Well, no, I was just saying, I see. Hey, Chris, can, can you take us through a kind of a scholarly uh, perspective of where Hill came from? Um, because a lot of people uh, I think would be, very confused, just like me. They're, they're reading the Old Testament, and hell is kind of like the grave. And all of a sudden, hell is something else entirely, or at least it seems like something else entirely uh, when the New Testament comes along. Uh, some would say that it, it's an idea that came from their, Babil- uh, their Babylonian, uh, or perhaps their Persian captivity, um, uh, that became synchronized into Judaism somehow. Uh, but however it came, then we have Jesus talking about it. And then from there, somehow, uh, we have people thinking that it's, uh, eternal conscious torment. And so can you just kind of walk us through the history of hell? Uh, sure. Um, just keeping in mind that I'm not an expert on the history of the matter and people should take what I say with a grain of salt. That having been said, um, firstly, I would not agree that the Old Testament knows nothing about hell, if by hell we mean a uh, place or um, time of final 
punishment. In other words, the, the Old Testament did, in fact, have at least hints of a difference between what happens when people die and what will happen at some point in the distant future when um, God uh, rectifies the injustices of the world. And so, for example, in Isaiah 24 through 27, I believe it is, what is sometimes called the little, uh, the, the Isaiah apocalypse, although that um, designation is improper because it's not really apocalyptic text, um, <clears throat> Isaiah looks forward to a day when God will swallow up death forever, um, and he says that the uh, the um, oppressors of the people of Israel aren't going to um, rise and live, but he says that his people, Yahweh's people, will rise and live. And then you see this, this um, early sort of hint of um, eschatological resurrection and eternal life and, and death. You see that um, start to be expanded upon a little bit more in, at, at the tail end of Isaiah, in Isaiah 66, 24, when God's enemies are slain and reduced to lifeless corpses and burned up by fire and eaten up by maggots, while God's people go on living uh, enduringly, for, you know, indefinitely. And you see in the book of Daniel, um, both the righteous and wicked resurrected, some to eternal life, the others to shame and everlasting contempt, the word contempt referring to how these dead wicked will be remembered forever. That's what contempt means. It, it doesn't mean any sort of torment. It describes how they're thought about by people that think they are contemptible. Um, so, you do see some of this uh, eschatological future retribution and future uh, eternal life. You do see some of that in the Old Testament, and that's not about Sheol or what would come to be called Hades in the New Testament. Um, it's about something distant beyond that. And that's what starts to get expanded upon a bit more in the New Testament. And here I think that what the New Testament says is, is very consistent with what the Old Testament says, that one day God will raise the um, the saved and the lost, or the wicked and the righteous, or however you want to describe the two groups of people. Um, he will judge the wicked as uh, or lost, or what have you, as deserving of death. Um, Paul is explicit about that in Romans 1, when he says that people who do such things know they deserve to die. Um, he will go on later to say that the wages of sin is death. Jesus says that God sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And on and on and on it goes. I mean, I, he says in the book of John, for example, that whereas um, Moses gave the Israelites bread from heaven and they died, Jesus says, I came to I came as the bread of, of life from heaven so that you might live forever and not die into eternity. So, the New Testament is actually extremely consistent in its view of eschatological reward and punishment with the Old Testament. And so then the question becomes, well, where did this idea of eternal torment come into play? And that is where I think, and this is where the largest grain of salt um, is called for in terms of what your listeners take away from what I say. Um, it does seem to me that you're right that um, not Babylonian influence, but um, Hellenistic influence caused the um, uh, the Second Temple Jews between the writings of the Old and New Testaments, uh, some of them to start to think of a place of future retribution in which souls live on forever. And this is because, um, unlike a uh, biblical and Hebraic view um, in which human beings are mortal and must be given life, according to the Hellenistic and, and Greek philosophies, uh, the human soul is immortal and will live forever and, and will never be destroyed. Um, and some Jews in the intertestamental period embraced that view. Many others did not and, and held to the Old Testament view. Um, and you see that 
that different that that, that sort of di- divide between what you might call annihilationists and traditionalists um, start to appear in the second century AD. So you've got Clement of Rome and Ignatius of Antioch and the writer of the Epistle of Barnabas all teaching my view in the late first and early second century. But then you've got people in the second half of the second century like Tatian of Abiadine and Ath- uh, Athenagoras teaching that souls are immortal and will live forever in, in either bliss or, or torment. Um, and I think that what uh, so, so, and they were very much influenced by um, uh, Hellenistic philosophy as well, I think. Uh, and then you've got the the great church father Augustine, and I think he deserves to be considered a great church father. He's he did he did great work. He was brilliant. He's considered by the church to be one of the great fathers, and he sort of um, he was very much influenced by his Hellenistic and Manichaean past, um, and and he put his stamp of approval on this um, eternal torment reading, and because of his influence, I think deservedly so, um, this view of eternal torment became the dominant view and remained so. Uh, until this day, and and there are other reasons why I think it remains that to this day. But I'm uh, probably already been rambling for too long. Hopefully, that gives a helpful idea of where I think the doctrine of eternal torment originated. And and do you mind if I just jump in with one quick thing about the um, the notion that the Jews copied their concept from the the Achaemenid Persians and so? Bart Ehrman's actually done an interesting interview because he's written a new book on heaven and hell. So he says that he used to be confident that that was the case, but after researching it, he doesn't think that can be proven. Uh, He thinks it's possible, but he's not, he wouldn't uh, say that anymore. Uh, So yeah, just wanted to add that. Okay, well, um, let me just, let me go back a a hair. Um, So you mentioned um, the the Hellenistic uh, view that souls... uh, could not die, but I would I would actually like to go back to some of your um, uh, citations of the Hebrew uh, hmm. scripture. Were were those not? And you can correct me if I'm wrong. Are are those not all uh, post uh, di- diaspora? Uh, no, passages? very much not. Okay. No. Um, uh, so, uh, well, so it depends on what you mean by post-diaspora. What, what I thought you were about to say was something like, um, uh, you know, second century BC. And there are certainly many scholars who think that's true of Daniel. Um, a significantly smaller number of scholars think that that's true of Isaiah twenty-four twenty-seven. And the reason why though a handful of scholars do think that Isaiah twenty-four through twenty-seven is late, like second century BC, is because they misinterpret it as apocalyptic literature and it's not apocalyptic literature and in fact what we found in the uh, among the Dead Sea Scrolls is that the Isaiah 24 to 27 uh, manuscript tradition had already greatly stabilized and and had already endured for some time by the time of the second century BC um, scholars increasingly I think are recognizing that Isaiah 24 27 is at least um, the 500s BC if not even earlier than that stretching as far back into the early uh, 7th century BC, like the early 600s. Um, that's pretty old. Um, now, when you say post-diaspora, it it could be immediately um, 
uh, after one of the, you know, the, the, the um, Assyrian or Babylonian um, uh, exile. But my my timeline and, you know, my, my understanding of the history is still very developing there. So I might be a little wrong about that. What I do know is all of the evidence suggests that Isaiah 24, 27 is at the early, is at the latest 500s BC, if not, if not older. Well, the reason I ask is because there seems to be uh, a bit of a split uh, in a timeline for early on you have um, the Hebrew writings and they don't seem to talk about hell in that way and then later they do have some passages as you mentioned uh, referring to hell in that way and so uh, I, I'm just trying to find where and why that split might be uh, one obvious question that a person might ask for instance is if the doctrine of hell was uh, well thought out and understood, why wasn't it mentioned in the garden? Uh, if this is if this is a punishment for disobedience, that would have been a really good time to say so. Um, but it didn't didn't seem to be the case at all. And the understanding uh, as we as we read through, especially the earlier parts of. Uh, the Old Testament, is that death is the end. And uh, when we read the book of Ecclesiastes, probably my favorite uh, Old Testament book, um, death is the end. Um, you know, it's it's very much emphatically so. Uh, so that doesn't seem to be the thought process later on. And so I was just wondering about that split. Well, you, so it is true, I think, that the um, the scene in the opening chapters of Genesis and the outlook in Ecclesiastes knows nothing of a future resurrection unto judgment. I'll grant you that, um, but that doesn't mean that they don't have an understanding of what hell might be, They, they and, and that may sound strange. But remember, I'm coming from the perspective that the Bible teaches that the punishment meted out in hell is death, that the, re, that, the that resurrection and final punishment punishment is meant to um, uh, to prove that the unrighteous are deserving uh, are, are not deserving of life and so they will die and remain dead forever um, and that's very consistent with the view of Genesis 1 through 3 that um, that those who disobey God will not receive immortality and are doomed to die it's very consistent with Ecclesiastes that uh, at least parts of Ecclesiastes that there are that death is the end at least for many um, but at the same time, you do have, even in very early texts, uh, indications that God has the ability to raise the dead. He raises uh, a number of dead throughout even the, um, I mean, you know, uh, is, it, is it Elijah or, or Elisha that, that raises um, a dead person? There are a few accounts of people being raised from the dead. Both. And you've also got, huh? Both. There you go. And you've also got um, Old Testament texts that um, that that speak of God as... Um, having the power to do that. Uh, and you do have the picture of resurrection being used in old texts like Ezekiel to as a symbol for national restoration. Um, you can't use an extremely detailed picture of resurrection like skeletons being reassembled and flesh being wrapped back around their bodies and the breath of life being breathed back into them. You can't use that as a symbol for national restoration if you don't have a picture of the symbol in the first place in mind. So you do have hints that um, resurrection, be, the, the, the people that had died undeservedly being brought back to life one day, you do have hints of that. Um, but remember that 
the writers of the Old Testament were very much um, human beings who live in this world just like us. And I'm fairly confident that neither Dale nor uh, David nor I, uh, well, I know this isn't the case with me, we don't typically go around minute by minute in our daily lives thinking and writing and talking about what's going to happen in the distant future. We're human beings. We have livelihoods, we have families, we have jobs, we have needs that are all about this world. And so it should be no surprise that the vast majority of the Old Testament writings are going to concern the goings-on in this life. And um, I wouldn't be surprised, uh, and I'm not surprised, to see a uh, something of a development of eschatological views um, over time as the Old Testament is written. Okay. Um there, there are things I would like to say there. There's some pushback that I would like to give. No. But I'm going to refrain. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I am going to refrain because uh, the conversation really isn't about me. I, um, I do want to make this a conversation between Christians. And with that, I'm going to ask Dale to help me ask the right questions as uh, I stir some conversation with Chris and David. Um, I want to start with that pairing first because both of you are on the annihilation side. Uh, it, but it strikes me that there are multiple views of annihilation too. Uh, it's not it's not all um, one view. So there is a type of annihilation view uh, that would be once you die on Earth, you're you're dead, and there is no resurrection to kill you again. Uh, so an, annihilation would be annihilation in this life. Another view uh, would obviously be, well, annihilation is uh, you're resurrected and you stand before some kind of judgment council and then they kill you again. Uh, and then a third, uh, immediately kill you again. And then a third view of annihilation uh, would be something like, okay, you die here, you're resurrected, you go before the judgment council and then you go into some type of uh, conscious torment until you have been tormented enough to die uh, and satisfy justice. So those are those are kind of three views of annihilation. So I'm going to start with uh, David. Which which one of those more aligns with your thinking? Um, I. I I don't know. Actually, I I think the one that uh, you're talking talking about there, the you know at the end of judgment you're raised. That's the one I've heard most of when you know they're when they're raised as far as annihilation goes. But as far as my view goes, it's when you're raised at the at the end of time, then you're judged, and that's where you spend eternity. Okay, so you're 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 saying you're not. You don't believe in annihilation. I I I got that wrong. Yeah, you're yeah. you're you're on the daily side. So I should actually, yeah. I should actually reserve this conversation for you and Elvin. Um, yeah. Chris, um, someone actually agree with me for a change on this. <laughs> well, I I think we might find places where you don't agree, but I'm going to try. Um, okay. Chris, um, annihilation. Which which one of those three views most aligns with your view of annihilation. Well, before I answer that, let me just say this will come as no surprise to anybody who knows that I am committed to the authority and reliability of the biblical text. 
So I'm going to go where I think I see the Bible leading, and no rational uh, reader of Scripture could think that the Bible doesn't teach the wicked are going to be raised. So um, you've got uh, not only the clear text in Daniel, but you've also got Jesus and Paul both affirming the dual resurrection of both believer and unbeliever um, in the eschaton. So, so the first example of annihilation that you um, that you gave, which I think is more in line with what the Jehovah's Witnesses teach, is not something that a Bible believer can teach uh, or, or believe. So that leaves the the two other forms that you said, and and I think that that's to be fair, I think it's something of a false dichotomy, because I think you used the word instantaneously or, or something along those lines. Um, I don't think of the death penalty as meted out by ex- by the, the electric chair or the firing squad or the noose or stoning or fire from heaven or crucifixion. I don't think of the death penalty as instantaneous. I think that the Bible pretty clearly teaches that the um, uh, that, that the unrighteous, those who aren't covered by the blood of the Lamb, will be raised. They will be judged. They will f- be found undeserving of eternal life, and they will be capitally punished. And that f- the form. The means by which they are capitally punished isn't made clear to us in Scripture, and it could vary from person to person, but all forms, practically, of capital punishment do inflict some degree of pain as in the process of dying, and and, and that process can take hours, as evinced by Christ's death on the cross. Um, and so, I think it's possible that the most heinous of sinners, um, as they are being killed on the final day, may experience hours of pain as they are being killed, um, as Christ did, whereas others might experience a, 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 a relatively more swift um, demise. Um, but I don't think that it will be a very long, protracted thing, and the reason is because the Bible doesn't say that the wages of sin is torment. It says that the wages of sin is death. And it doesn't say that God is going to um, uh, miraculously keep people alive and immortal for eons until he finally destroys them. No, immortality, enduring life, is something that's only going to be given to the saved. So there's no there's no basis for believing that the resurrected lost are going to live for eons or or even years before they're finally destroyed. Um, I take a very plain and straightforward reading of Scripture, which is that they will be raised, will be judged, and they will be capitally punished or executed painfully, violently, but to death nevertheless. Okay, you, do you acknowledge that there are ways of killing a person that is humane and not painful and violent? Um, I, well, I, yes, I recognize that there are forms that are not humane, um, but I don't buy the idea that humane means nonviolent or non-painful. I think that the that lethal injection is a humane way of killing people, and yet even even increasing number of medical tech, uh, uh, medical people are saying that some degree of pain and um, suffering is experienced even in lethal injection. I think that um, hanging is. Uh, humane, but it's a bit violent and painful as well. But then, of course, there are um, methods of... Isn't hanging when done right fairly instant? Snap, done... No, I don't think so. It depends on what you mean by instant. Um, Maybe maybe by instant you mean... um, 60 seconds or something like that. In which case, sure, yeah, I think people can die that quickly, but I don't think of that as instantaneous. Yeah, I well, I, it seems like hanging could could be done other ways. I I know that palliative care, for instance, if we were looking at a, a merciful way of killing people, uh, we can we can end a life in ways that are not violent uh, and not painful. But they're also not punitive. 
Right. Okay. So this is this is the point that I that I want to make sure that the audience gets. Sure. All of all of the methods that you're talking about. So you're really in category three here that I mentioned, uh, as opposed to category two. Category two would simply be to end a life. Uh, the the point is to end punishment by ending the life. That is my view. But well, but you're not really because you're not simply suggesting that a life should be ended. You're suggesting that it should be um, torturous to some degree. Uh, because if otherwise, you would say that well, everyone could uh, just uh, fall asleep. Uh, and and God could just instantly remove the life from people. It doesn't have to be some torturous thing, but He's going to use some torturous method, um, and that that seems to be what you're saying. Uh, so there's there is a difference between putting someone to death and tormenting them to death. Well, this is why I said that your second and third categories were what I see as a false dichotomy. I think it would be better to call these three views: the instantaneous, uh, no no pain at all view. The on the one on the one hand, on the other hand, the very long period of time spent in hell suffering until you exhaust your penalty and then you die. That's on the other hand, and I don't believe that view either. I believe in this middle view that uh, God punishes you with a violent and painful death, which is extremely consistent with. The, the means by which people are punitively killed all throughout scripture. Okay. I mean, do if you, you do you think that people deserve uh, a violent and painful death? Do you think that anyone deserves, for instance, to be burned alive? Uh, I think the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah did at the very least. You, you actually think that a just punishment, when you think about justice in, in the purest way that you think about justice, that whatever they did their the just punishment for them is to be, Slowly burned alive. Well, I, I never said slowly. It, it, it's an interesting way, uh, adjective to add on at the eleventh hour of the little part of the conversation. Well, okay, um, but I imagine anyone being burned alive would feel like it slowly. Okay, well, sure, we we we, <laughs> so, we can. But 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 feeling like it slowly doesn't make it slowly. Uh, but putting that aside, yeah, I think that that um, is just provided that um, God is the one who has deemed it so, and God did deem it so with Sodom and Gomorrah, and He may deem it to be so with many of the worst of sinners on the final day. Um, Hitler, for example, or Stalin might deserve that kind of violent burning to death, whereas the little old lady down the street might deserve something more akin to lethal injection. What, why are we? Why are we punishing little old ladies down the street again? <laughs> because everybody sins. Oh. All right. And, and, and if, if you think, now, listen, I have not listened to skeptics and seekers before, and, and I'll own that. And so I'm not exactly sure where you're coming from. Um, but if you are under the misapprehension that people are punished in hell because they uh, don't accept Christ or something like that, that's a mistake. People are punished in hell and deserve it because we're all sinners. So and we all know. I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you to hold that for a, okay, a moment because sure. we're going to we're going to get there. Um, and it's okay that you haven't uh, heard skeptics since years before. You're, <laughs> you're, a, you're a great guest. Uh, Thank you. Uh, so uh, that said, yeah, I'm I, I'm speaking uh, not just for myself, but a little bit for the audience as well, and and what I what I think they might be saying and thinking at this moment. Uh, also, it, this this idea of annihilation, where you're dug up from the dead, judged, 
and then burned alive or something. Sounds pretty hideous. And I think that a lot of people uh, listening to this uh, would say, but nobody deserves that. In the same way, you you might say, nobody deserves to be tortured eternally. That's not the only extreme. I, I, there are plenty of there are plenty of uh, ways of putting someone to death where I would say nobody deserves that. Um, and so, is is there a limit for you uh, in in how how gruesome this punishment can be? Is there a cutoff for you where you where you say no? That's actually too sadistic. I'm disinclined to impose my subjective feelings about what is appropriate upon the biblical text. So I'm um, my reasons for believing what I do are not based on my personal subjective opinions about what's just and not. Um, in fact, I've very often said, as uh, David might know, having listened to some of my stuff, that even to this day, I think if God deemed that eternal torment was the just penalty for sin, I would accept that. Um, but I don't see that taught in Scripture, and I see the view that I've here articulated in Scripture, so I'm not inclined to see the examples of capital punishment I've listed as being un, unjust or too severe. Now, might I might there be a point at which I would say, gosh, that sure seems a little too harsh? Sure, but I emphasize that word seems, and I'm a fallible, fallen person whose sense of justice and whose sense of the gravity of sin is warped by my own sin. And so, I'm, as I said, I'm, I'm not inclined to impose my fallible perceptions upon uh, upon god okay let me just ask that same question to the other two um i'll start with uh, you uh david is there is there any punishment that you would think uh man, that's that's too harsh um do, do you have a limit there that that's not coming for you is it <laughs> no i don't think so <laughs> hey um <laughs> uh seriously uh you asked me the right question this time, so I'm I'm happy for that. But uh, <laughs> uh, I, I totally agree with Chris on this. I I, I have nothing to add. I he he brilliantly put it, and that's you know I hold to that as well. Dale, I mean, do we don't know the, the gravity of sin. Uh, sorry, that was for me. Yeah, do you feel the same way? Um. So so yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what Chris said. I also agree that the the Bible. Is, is primary. It, that's divine inspiration. Um, I might disagree in that I think that we have other avenues. God gives us a moral conscience. Um, so if, if, if so eternal torment is different than eternal torture. So if there is an internal torture like Dante's Inferno, um, I think my moral conscience would provide me with strong knowledge that that can't be true or something or that would be immoral uh so something like that if, if there is actual torture going on I, I might have some issues with it but um yeah what about again. what about temporary torture what about what about torture that lasts for three days three days of waterboarding is that okay yeah I, I, i'm not sure so i think it's possible that torture could be could be moral in certain circumstances, but I, I haven't, like I said, my, my own moral conscience speaks out strongly against that type of thing. So whatever evidence from the Bible or something would have to overcome that. Um, so I, it, you know, I would say I'm, I'm 95% certain based on my moral conscience that some kind of 
punishment that entails torture is is wrong. So let me let me just ask uh, this again for you, uh, Chris, in a different way. I know that you're an annihilationist, uh, but let's let's just say that you uh, were on the more traditional side of this. Would you see eternal conscious torture as being wrong? Would that would that provide a moral problem for you? I don't, you know, when you guys throw the word torture around without defining it, um, that becomes being, an incredible being, being burned alive forever. I mean, as I said that, or, or as I implied that that is is an example of something that strikes me as uh, too severe. But again, my my moral sense of what's right and wrong based on being created in the imago dei, the image of God, is nevertheless marred and 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 fallen and fallible as a result of my sin. So you, and you wouldn't rebel against that notion then. Certainly not. Not okay. not if I were convinced that's what Scripture teaches. Okay. Um, very well. So I want to get. I want to come around to uh, the question that you were starting to answer, uh, Chris. I want to end with you uh, on this, and I want to start with Dale uh, and get get opinions from everyone here. Why do people go to hell in the first place? What is what is why is hell there? What sends a person to hell? Uh, this is this is also a matter of some debate and dispute. Uh, Dale, I want to start with you. Yeah. So, uh, so in the first place, as Chris rightly said, it's it's because we're sinners. We've sinned against God. We've rebelled against God. Um, so, under my notion of, of okay, well, what what is eternal destruction or death? It, it's spiritual death. So, I, I let me it's- let me just interrupt and go back just a hair. You said because we're sinners. Uh, I don't want to get too deep down the road, but this is kind of important. Is it because we were born sinners, uh, and therefore our original state is deserving of hell, or because we later sinned and thus earned uh, hell that way? Yeah, so, so there are different views. So you, you know uh, firsthand that I don't believe in the doctrine of original sin. Um, however, uh, so, so I could take an Eastern Orthodox view where it's, you know, once you reach that age of responsibility and then you commit that sin, that's when you become a sinner. But I, I actually believe, uh, and this might make me weird, but it's, it's this inheriting of a sinful disposition or an inclination towards sin. And it could be that that is a sin in and of itself, that we choose to inherit this uh, sinful nature, so to speak. So at that, upon conception, I can say you're, you're a sinner at that point. I'm not dogmatic about that, but that's kind of where but I... you do I, leave I, a door open that we may have chosen... A sinful nature before yeah. we were born. Yeah. Okay, and then that would that would make us deserving of hell if we were to die, uh, say, in the womb. Yeah, exactly. Hey, hey David, how about you? What uh, what what sends us to hell? <laughs> Sin. Uh, I, I I'm pretty much agreeing with Dale here so I have a I'm more inclined to that position, but I kind of take a uh, take both of those positions uh, uh, pretty seriously. So, you know, the, on the other hand, yeah, you're born into sin. And then the other hand, yeah, you are inclined to sin. I, I, I told more to the inclination side of it. Okay, so you, uh, you would embrace uh, more firmly than Dale the notion of original sin. Is that right? A little, little bit more. I mean, 
Yeah, I mean, I would I would hold a little bit more, but I do agree with a lot of what he said. Right. So, I, I mean, uh, if I understand original sin correctly, if you die in the womb, uh, you're hellbound. No, that's not the doctrine of original that, sin. Uh, that's not. No, it's not. Yeah. In, in other, in other no, words, people who people not. who people who affirm original sin disagree on whether who whether people who die in the womb will go to hell or not. Okay. Of so course, yeah, uh, absolutely. Clear, clear, clear it up, Chris. Who, I'm about who goes, to. Who goes? Who goes? He's to about to. <laughs> Somebody got it. Good. Drop it like it's hot. I uh, I I wanted to save you for last on this one because I know that you have a lot more to say. Uh, so take us to school. Why do we go to hell? No, it's it, it's actually funny you say that. I don't think I have a whole lot to add to what Dale and David have already said. I I do affirm the doctrine of original sin, which is the view that um, Adam as and Eve, depending on whether you're egalitarian or not, um, are or is our federal head, meaning that um, his choice to sin affects all of his progeny. Um, that that all of his descendants are counted as guilty by Adam's transgression. Um, that is something that's affirmed even by people who don't think that people who die in the womb go to hell because they think that um, maybe, you know, uh, God overlooks that or something up until an age of accountability. There's a whole bunch of debate I don't want to get into there. But I think that even if you deny the doctrine of original sin, you can still affirm what Dale and David have, which is that we are are, uh, conceived with a sinful disposition, um, uh, a rebellious disposition. And I think it's a combination of that and our individual sins, those of us who have had the luxury of being born and growing. Um, it's a combination of those two things that I think warrants our final death penalty. Yeah, but that's a little weaselly for me. I, I need to know, <laughs> um, is, are, are, are we, uh, is our hell ticket punched because we were born with a sinful disposition or because we sinned? Yes, is the answer to that if, question. If it's it both. is because we have yeah. a sinful disposition, then we are hell-bound from the womb. How is, how is that not the logical conclusion? This is not a trap. I am just trying to understand what you're telling me and the implications of it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that what you're proposing would make a little bit more sense, or even a lot more sense, if it were true that there was absolutely no distinction between what happens to one person in hell and another. But I think one could say that the um, that the however one understands the nature of final punishment. Um, I, obviously, I understand the nature of final punishment from Scripture to be death, uh, but somebody else might think of it as eternal separation from God in immortal bodies that God, for some reason, makes immortal so they can live forever. Um, whatever, However you understand that, you could still think, and, and we typically do think on both sides of that debate, that the that how that will play out on the final day um, and into eternity may differ from person to person. So I would say that we are indeed hellbound from conception because of our sinful dispositions, our very nature, if not also because of original sin, as David and I, to one extent or another, affirm. But that the um, the uh, the differences between one person's fate and another in in hell are determined by the differences in their individual sins, okay, but and that's why I say it's both. But so the Craigian uh, analysis, though, uh, by Craigian I mean uh, William Lane Craig, his analysis is that uh, when we see acts of uh, what seems like uh, just murderous rage from God where everyone is killed, man, woman, children, uh, baby in the womb, that in fact, 
God is simply relocating uh, the babies uh, to heaven uh, in that it is not an immoral act because of that. But if they have a sinful nature, then they're not being relocated to heaven at all. They're being relocated someplace else. Uh, How do you square that? I I guess I'm not following what you're – I don't think that um, the unborn who die in the womb or very young children or the unevangelized or the mentally challenged, I don't think that they do automatically get relocated to heaven or something like that. My my wife and I have lost two of our children, and I don't personally anticipate seeing them um, in eternity with me. Uh, So I don't share Craig's analysis, um, and I'm not – you'll just have to forgive me. I'm not sure – I understand what you're asking me to square. I think that uh, Dale probably understands what I'm asking you to square. Dale, square it. Yeah, so so I think you're, you, David J, are confusing or conflating a couple things. So so yes, we deserve to go to hell. Everyone deserves to go to hell. We're sinners. We all have this sinful disposition. But there are certain Jesus pays for our sins, and he sets out certain conditions um, for how we can avoid that that penalty um and depending on whether you're an exclusivist or an inclusivist how are those conditions applied to people that have never heard the gospel before how are they applied to babies um that obviously can't express belief in jesus resurrection or something like that so i think what you're what you're wanting to debate here is okay well what are the conditions upon which someone with a sinful disposition or is a sinner can be saved and how is that how are those conditions applied in different circumstances does that does that make sense well, that's really well said yes that that is well said but it just doesn't answer the question so William Lane Craig uh, assumes that all babies that God uh, murdered in the Bible uh, are simply being relocated to heaven uh, oh I understand what you're trying to okay and that doesn't that doesn't square with the idea that uh, we are all sinners from the womb. Well, it, it does because, so if I, again, I'm not dogmatic, but I believe that myself. I, I love William Lane Craig, so I, I disagree with Chris on that. And it's just, okay, he's applying those conditions in an inclusivist way. He's including these babies that are, yeah, he's applying these yeah, that I guess I, I think that the conditions can be applied to different people. We don't. It isn't one size fits all. You have to explicitly believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. Well, what? So some babies are going to go to heaven and some babies are going to go to hell. Because this is we're we're not talking about what you believe. We're talking if you're saying that we are worthy of hell just by having a sin nature. Babies in the womb have a sin nature. Right, so but but what Dale is how saying, do you, how do how do they avoid hell? Because of the work of Christ, on Dale's view, that's that's what Dale was trying to explain. You've got to understand that I come from a very high Calvinist Reformed view, according to which Jesus died in the place of only the elect. Whereas somebody like William Lane Craig comes from a universal atonement view, according to which Christ died on the cross for all human beings. And that makes it possible in that view for God to choose to apply the saving work of Christ to unborn, to um, the unevangelized or whatever, depending upon what theologian you ask. 
because that work was done for all humanity. But he might choose to require that people above, beyond a certain age of accountability have to um, volitionally choose to embrace that atoning work in order to be saved. So, so what Dale is saying and what William Lane Craig is saying are very consistent with how they read scripture. I don't, I don't think that there's the problem in it that you're claiming to see. Okay, but so it's a it's a difference between a Calvinist view and uh... not exactly because even many Calvinists think that some unborn children are uh, who die in the womb were among the elect. So if if God has chosen a um, a portion of humanity to redeem, and if Christ died on the cross for that portion of humanity, and if that portion of humanity includes some unborn children who die in the womb, then those unborn children who die in the womb, even though they aren't born and come to express faith in Christ, they would still be among the elect and be recipients of the work that Christ did on the cross. Okay, so it's not. Be, but to be clear, you take the position that uh, those who die in the womb are still under the curse of sin. Is, is that right. Okay. So it's having said that, we've got two different views uh, on, on, how, on, on the consequences of sin early on here. David Russell, Seeker, Seeker David, uh, who, are, who are you convinced by? What, what, are you, what are you thinking at this moment? I would hold closer to what Dale said, absolutely. Why? Why? Well, uh, again, everything he said I, is is pretty much where I come from. I'm not a Calvinist, so obviously I'm more of a Molinist and uh, Arminian. So, yeah, I do, I do, I do agree with that. And it, they both both views do hold up in orthodoxy. So I I don't see a problem there. So I don't know what what you're trying to. Get at there. So I, so I'm, totally. I'm pretty sure that there will be some comments on on this section here. <laughs> I don't see how yeah. you can all say oh, both views hold up in orthodoxy. They're d- very different views. <laughs> yeah, but so. orthodoxy orthodoxy doesn't mean they're all identical. Um, yeah. Christians have, from the very beginning, differentiated between views, uh, truths that are essential to what it is to be a Christian, essential to what it is to be in a saving relationship with God, and doctrines about which Christians can disagree. Um, and that's all you're seeing amongst us. You've heard yeah. us say, "You've heard us say, I agree with such and such" over and over again because we do share this core Christian set of beliefs. But once you get beyond that core, we're humans. We read scripture differently, and so we understand it differently. Okay, and that's. I, um, I also want. So I want the audience to hear that, but I also want the panel of Christians to hear uh, why this doesn't really fly with skeptics. It, it sounds like a major disagreement to us. Um, and so you may be used to disagreeing on this. This is a matter of soteriology. Um, uh, I hope I use the right word there. This is a salvation did, well issue, done. right? Yeah. Um, and yeah. so it's not a minor issue. <laughs> and, and well, we didn't. Um, I didn't say it's minor. I just said it's not. Yeah, it's not essential to what it means to be a Christian. Yeah. Okay. Well, so, that, so that, most, yeah, most say, yeah. that leaves Absolutely. Christianity pretty broad. Um, yeah, that's right. It does. That could be, that could be a real challenge, but that's, that's not, um, my main topic. Today. I think that's part of its beauty, by the way, is it's, yeah. is it's diversity. Well, let's, let's, yeah. let's, uh, let's have that conversation in the comments. We are, we're past our first hour and I want to engage with, um, some discussion that's obviously been left on the table. I've been holding for this um, time between Dale 
uh, in Chris, uh, which gets uh, a little bit more to the core, uh, I think. of this Now our claws get to come out, huh? Yes. Um, so, uh, David. And I'm just watching. No, actually, David, I'm going, to in, I'm going to enlist you to help me moderate this oh, session. No. So All right, go what ahead. I want you to do is uh, to feel free to jump in with uh, questions of your uh, own as this as this particular uh, match takes place, uh, but the big I think the biggest disagreement um, on the panel is uh, eternal uh, eternal life for the damned or uh, annihilation for the damned, uh, and so um, I just want to start with Dale. Um, Dale, make your case, uh, your best case, and you can take as much time as you like um, for why uh, eternal uh, eternal life is destined for all people uh, and not just the saved. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think the primary reason for this is, is the Bible does seem to teach that there is this going to be eternal torment for the for the damned. Um, so. The Bible distinguishes when the Bible talks about eternal punishment. I I think it's talking about it more in relational terms rather than you're going to physically die and or something like that. It's it's talking about separation from God, and this is why we have a distinction between spiritual death and physical death. So so death in a Bible concept is it means separation, right? So physical death is your soul separates from your body. Uh, spiritual death is separation from God, and, and that's illustrated by verses like, you know, the parable of, of Lazarus in Luke 16. Um, I think it's it's being hinted at there with the big chasm, um, and uh, I know Chris has responses for that, so I'll, I'll wait until he brings those up. Um, you know, Revelation 14, the, the, the eternal punishment is being contrasted with eternal reward, and these are meant to be conscious. These are... You know, weeping and gnashing of teeth is a conscious term. It, it's we're going to be in anguish and, and shame over what we've done in this life and how we've sinned against God. And again, that that's said to be eternal. So my I find it problematic to say, oh, it's just going to be physical death. He's going to separate the body from the soul, and presumably the soul is also going to be made uh, to be unconscious in, in Chris's view. So that's going to be an inert object kept somewhere or something like that so yeah i just think that that scripture seems to indicate um in certain verses that it's going to be con- we're going to be conscious our eternal punishment will be uh, put on a, an eternally conscious level um philos- philosophically i also had some questions for for chris as well on his view so what is the justification for the punishment where, okay, you're just physically dead and then your soul becomes inert and it still exists. He, he doesn't believe in annihilationism uh, where the soul ceases to exist, um, but it, it, it's unconscious. It's, it's like an inanimate object almost. Um, so I, I was wondering what the justification for punishment would be. Yeah, I, I, just just to be clear, I don't recognize that as my view, not even in the least. So I'm not sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll have to at some point get into clarification. So we, I think. we will have uh, uh, some back and forth and uh, yeah, yeah. questions between the two of you. Uh, Dale, before you are done with your statement, I just want to have you speak to a couple of other uh, matters before I throw it to Chris. 
so under your view, uh, do you believe that the uh, that it is eternal conscious torment, or that is eternal, and that there is a chance to uh, be redeemed and saved from that torment uh, after the fact? So, in yes. other words, the torment, do you think the torment has to be eternal or does it n- not have to be eternal? Um, so, so, if I think I understand what you're asking. So, I used to view that it might be possible to um, become redeemed and, and go uh, to be saved or something like that, even in the final state. I've changed my mind on that after researching this, and, and Chris's videos were, were helpful um, on that, as well as some of the other people. So now, I have changed my mind that no, once once you're damned in the final state, it, it's it's going to be irreversible. Um, no, no one will, you know, pay pay for their sins or something like that, and, and be able to get out. Um, okay. So will the will the um, punishment be? Uh, graded on a curve um, will everyone have the same level of torment or will it be different levels of torment yeah no there's there's definitely I think all, all three of us agree on that there's degrees of punishment okay but will okay so uh, further then will the punishment all be in one place a place called hell or will there be different places for different types of offenders like we have different levels of prison uh, we don't throw people with misdemeanors in federal prisons. Yeah, it's going to be all in one place. All in one place, but different levels. How does that work? I'm just just curious. How do you, how do you what is um what is the scenario that that could work? Um, because once again, I'm, my mind is stuck in the prison scenario. Uh, you can't have different levels of punishment if they're all in the same prison. Well, sure you can. You, you, I'm. I could be sitting here with you and you're, you know, having to listen, uh, both Chris and, and David are having to listen to me could be much more mental anguish for, for them than, than it is for you, David. Well, I've, I've suffered some mental anguish just with that. Uh. <laughs> That's a great uh, well, answer. If, if I could, if I could just jump in here too, I, I don't know if uh, I'm sure some of you, uh, some of you guys have read the great divorce by C.S. Lewis. I, for me, that has always been like the image of hell that I've had, you know, and I've, I've even read books where people say they go to hell and they see all this stuff and it's nonsense. And then I read C.S. Lewis. And I was like, hey, that that kind of sounds more like something that I could agree with. Well, to summarize that for the listener and for me. Because oh, I wow. So, so he he describes hell as like, like. For example, Napoleon's in a in a bubble, eternally wondering why he wa- lost Waterloo. You know, and he's just pacing back and forth, and there's no presence of God, there's no hope for him, and he's just in anguish that way. Where another guy pops up and sees his wife, but as soon as she mentions God, he starts shrinking, and you know, is angry because he still will never accept God because he's actualized himself in hating God. So it's pretty wild. If you ever read the book, I would suggest reading it. It's good. It's just a good book all around. Okay. Well, that's not people exactly being punished in the same place. I mean, I. Well, it's all in the same. It's all in the same area. It's described all in the same area. It's just in different different forms. 
Okay. It's it, it, you'd have forgive to read me, the book. Forgive me. That I, mean, sounds I, like, I don't have. I, it sounds I like it, it just sounds like a graduated version of Dante's but, Inferno. But, but you know, you're not, and that's the thing. I mean, we've never been to hell. <laughs> so, right. But but you can you can at you least can see why I would say that that sounds like. that sounds a lot like Dante's Inferno to me. Um, okay. You know, well, that's that's I see it. That's fine. You know, liars liars get hung up by their tongue, and you know, um, uh, terrorist bombers, uh, you know, experience getting blown up again and again, and you know, that's this is this is just torture fantasy. I'm sorry, that doesn't it just doesn't sound like anything that a serious person would take seriously. Dale, is that how you view it? Um, so yeah, I, I do like the the view of, of C.S. Lewis or, or you know Richard Swinburne, for example. He has this notion. I, I call it having a, a character fit for salvation. So once once you're in hell, um, it seems to me that the Bible's teaching it's it's irreversible. So you become entrenched in this rebellion against God, and it just you know compounds and stuff like that. So. Yeah, I do more or less agree with what David R. just said. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so uh, Chris, I'm going to give you an equal opportunity here to uh, give, uh, take as much time as you, you like. I know that you are used to talking about this, so when I say take as much time as you like, <laughs> cut, cut it off at 10 minutes. Um, but uh, actually, you can you can you can even go longer than ten minutes. Because <laughs> I'm not going to go time. ten minutes. On. I, I, look, I love I love hearing you talk about this stuff. So I don't know why uh, <laughs> this is this is why you're you're on the show. Um, I think that it provides a very interesting perspective uh, that a lot of uh, atheists have not uh, heard and aren't familiar with. So I I want to share your view with both sides. So that said, make your best case uh, for why Dale is wrong, uh, or uh, you may not you may not. Hey, I got. Stories. I do got to say, hey, I do got to say that there's a lot of times I watch Chris and I start rooting for him, even if I disagree <laughs> with him. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you. I'll yeah. take it. Yeah, Chris. Chris is very good at talking about this subject. So uh, I am going to unchain you for a few minutes and uh, tell us why uh, the eternal uh, eternal view is is incorrect and the conditional um, annihilation view is is better. Sure. So it begins with anthropology. Um, I, I think it's unwise to begin the discussion of about hell with hell itself. I think it's important to dig a little bit deeper first and talk about anthropology. And when we look at scripture, what we see in the opening chapters of Genesis is that Adam and Eve are, uh, when they sin, they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden with, for an expressed purpose, an explicit purpose. This is in Genesis chapter 3, I think it's right around verse 22, 21, 23, something like that. God kicks them out of the garden and and revokes their access to the tree of life so that they can't live forever. That's explicit. And their being um, their, their access to the tree of life being withheld, their de their demise is secured and they eventually do die. But that tree of life um, appears at the other end of the Bible in Revelation 22, where only the saved have access to its fruit in this picture of New Jerusalem coming down from heaven and, and being among man for all, for all eternity. 
Um, the picture is meant to indicate that immortality, the kind of everlasting life that Adam and Eve could have had if they'd continued to have access to that tree of life, is something that the saved will have. And this is consistent with what you see in the um, in, in Paul's teaching on resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Immortality, incorruptibility, these are things that are given to the saved when Christ returns to make them fit to inherit the kingdom of God. But the lost, the wicked, aren't going to inherit the kingdom of God. The immortality isn't something awaiting them. You see in Luke chapter 20, Jesus saying, right around verses 35 and 36, I think, um, you see Jesus uh, saying that it is those who are deemed worthy to attain to the resurrection and that age who will be unable to die. So, you've got this clear, consistent teaching all throughout Scripture that bodily immortality, enduring physical life, is something that is a gift that is given by God's mercy and grace to people who don't deserve it. But not to everybody. It's to the people that he has redeemed. So that's number one. Anthropology is that human beings are by default mortal, and God must grant us immortality in order to be able to endure physically forever. Um, and that's something that God will do only for the saved. Then there's the question of atonement. Um, we, if, I don't know for certain, but I suspect that to, at least to one degree or another, the three Christians here on the panel today all uh, affirm the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Now, I also affirm penal substitutionary atonement. I don't know if that's the case with David and Dale, but the idea well, of well, it... Let, very, let me just interrupt you and find out real quick. Sure. Uh, Dale, penal, substitution, uh, penal substitutionary atonement, yes or no? Absolutely, yeah. I, I view the atonement as a, a multifaceted doctrine, so I, I don't think it's only penal substitution, but I absolutely affirm penal substitution. David Russell? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Yeah. Go ahead. They put yeah. it well. They, they put yeah. it well. Penal substitution yeah. is a, is an important but not exclusive uh, facet of the atoning work of Christ. Now, what that means, um, what 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 penal substitution means literally is that Christ bore the punishment that we deserved, so that we won't have to. All right. Now, according to the traditional view here represented by Dale and also represented by David to some extent, and, and also to some of the other names that have been mentioned, Gary Habermas, J.P. Holding, and so forth, according to that view, the punishment meted out in hell includes bodily immortality and everlasting life. Now, I don't mean eternal life, the phrase eternal life, which many people on their side of the debate understand to be a term of art, something describing a quality of life rather than a duration of life. Maybe they might view it that way. But but putting that aside, either way, their view does entail that, that, that the punishment is something experienced while, uh, forever because they have been made immortal and, and made, po made capable of enduring it forever. And yet, Jesus, the punishment he bore on the cross, and this is, all, this is extremely consistent through Old Testament and New, is death. It, it's it's uh, prefigured in the Mosaic sacrificial system in the Old Testament, where an animal's life is taken in the stead of a person whose life was forfeit because of sin. In other words, one life was deserved to be taken, and an animal's life is taken in its place so that they can instead live. And you see that in the um, Passover sacrifice of the lamb, for example, and, that, and Jesus is called in the New Testament our Passover lamb. Um, you've got the Greek prepositions which are used in the New Testament to say that Jesus died for sinners, and the prepositions used have this concept of one for the other, a substitution, one in the place of another. So, what we see is that Jesus bore the punishment of death on the cross, not everlasting life in, tor in torment. 
All right. So so atonement, um, sub penal substitutionary atonement better supports conditionalism. And then there's the issue of what the Bible consistently says is the punishment for sin. And it's very consistently and repeatedly destruction and death. And by destruction and death, I don't mean ceasing to exist, I mean ceasing to live. So, for example, and this is and this was really critical for me in, in my becoming convinced and remaining convinced of this view, this is true even of texts historically thought to teach eternal torment. So, for example, very often people will bring up Mark 9, 48, where Jesus says um, that in Gehenna their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. What a lot of people don't realize is that Jesus is quoting almost verbatim Isaiah 66, 24, in which it's explicitly said to be dead bodies that are being eaten up by worms and, and, and devoured by fire. Um, the text explicitly says that God's enemies are slain in verse 15, I think it is. And so, the picture is of the dead bodies, uh, the corpses of God's enemies being burned up and eaten up by maggots, uh, thereby leaving no remnant of sin and, and corruption in God's glorious cosmos any longer. Um, you've got Matthew twenty-five forty-six, in which Jesus says that some will go into eternal life and others into eternal punishment. Well, if the punishment doesn't include everlasting life, then it can't be everlasting life and immortality. Um, the, 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 the prima facie reading of that text would be that that eternal punishment is the everlasting punishment of death, not an everlasting punishment experienced while being immortal and living forever in hell. And that's consistent with verse 41 from a few verses earlier, because when, when Jesus says that the, um, the, the wicked will depart into the uh, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, that's not the first time Jesus uses the phrase eternal fire. He used it earlier in Matthew 18, 8, and 9, where he sets it up as a parallel to Gehenna which is a New Testament Greek uh, shortening and transliteration of the Old Testament Valley of the Son of Hinnom, which is promised in places like Jeremiah 7 to be a place where that would one day become uh, the, called the Valley of Slaughter, where, the, uh, where scavenging beasts and birds can't be frightened away from consuming, from devouring the corpses of God's enemies. Um, it's, it, the phrase eternal fire is a phrase that Jude uses in Jude 7 to refer to the fire that came down from heaven and destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And he and Peter, um, both drawing on the same literary tradition before them, say that that's an example of what awaits the finally um, wicked in hell. Um, even Revelation 14 and Revelation 20, which we may not probably get into much detail in here, um, when looked at closely and when you apply standard principles of uh, accepted principles of, um, of, of hermeneutics and exegesis, even those passages positively teach that the fate of the lost is death, not everlasting life in torment. So, um, so just to sort of sum, sum it up, what I've offered here so far, and this has only been a small sampling of the case for conditionalism from Scripture. Number one, anthropology teaches, biblical anthropology teaches that human beings are bodily immortal and will not be immortal unless God grants them immortality as a gift so they can be made fit to inherit the kingdom of God. Um, when it comes to atonement, the substitutionary uh, penalty that Jesus bore as our substitute was death, not everlasting life in torment. And finally, the Bible consistently and clearly teaches in no uncertain terms and in a variety of ways that the final fate awaiting those who refuse God's gift will be death and destruction, um, never to live again, rather than immortality and everlasting life in hell. Excellent. I, um, that was eight and a half minutes, by the way, so I stayed under my limit. <laughs> yeah, no, no that, that, was, that was fantastic. I uh, personally uh, like your first two points in your case better than your, better than your third point, because the third point is obviously debatable because we're talking about well what is what does the Bible mean when it says this or that uh, it's it's 
very hard to make the case that, well, the Bible is very clear on this. Uh, it's most it's skeptics, a lot easier than you might think. <laughs> I understand, but when skeptics hear that, especially exgens, those who have been Christians, very familiar with the Bible, we tend to groan at that because both sides of just about any debate can say the Bible clearly <laughs> says um, and, and defends their position. But I do, I do want to give you uh, credit, even as a person who grew up hearing and in believing the other case that I think your first two points are very strong. And I want to throw it to Dale uh, now to um, see what he thinks. The anthropology uh, case of humans, we are first mortal and granted immortality as a gift. And then secondly, the, um, uh, the atonement uh, case of uh, Jesus did not, uh, suffer eternal conscious torment. He suffered death uh, to atone for us. Um, and then, of course, you uh, you can come in on the third one too. But I just I just wanted to call those out as as I thought those were particularly good, Dale. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, in terms of the the first point, um, so I actually do agree one hundred percent. I mean that the Bible is, is clear. I forget which verse it is, but it says only God is immortal in and of his own inherent nature. So God, the question is God grants immortality to certain people. I, I'm not a Platonist. I don't believe that we have an inherently immortal soul or something like that. Um, so in that sense, yes, it, it's our immortality for both the saved and the damned is conditional upon God giving it to us. And then it just becomes a question. Well, does the Bible teach it? Is God going to grant immortality to the damned uh, as well as the saved? And I, I think it, it does say that in certain verses that, that I've alluded to that speak of eternal conscious torment. Um, so, yeah, that, that would be my response to, to that is, of course, uh, Chris is right that we aren't inherently immortal um, and God has to convey immortality on us. It's just the question, well, is he going to do that for the damned or not? Um, the second point was about, uh, so, okay, so Jesus, uh, he suffered, the punishment for sins was pure physical death. Um, I'm not sure that's true, and I may be weird in this front, but I, I think he did experience spiritual deaths, relational separation from God on the cross, and this is when he cries out, you know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me or something, I, I think he was actually experiencing how as separation relational separation from god the father um at that moment um so yeah i would just disagree that uh the only punishment that jesus suffered was physical death separation of his um mind from the, the body and yeah what was the th and what was the third point david uh, I, I think the third point, uh, Chris, correct me if I'm wrong, was uh, more generically, uh, the Bible says so. <laughs> well, it was it was that the 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 Bible consistently, in my view, teaches that the fate, uh, the punishment awaiting the finally lost, is death and destruction rather than immortality and everlasting life. Okay. Um, yeah, and I do think that there, uh, yes, pr predominantly it speaks of destruction, death, perishing, that sort of thing. But again, as David said, it comes down, well, how do you interpret that? What does that mean? So there there are lots of verses where it talks about um, God destroying cities or something. Israel was destroyed, but it wasn't just, okay, that's the end of Israel. It, it You know, that's the whole point of the Babylonian 
exile and then they came back they were restored to life and this is uh sort of a you know yeah so i would i would just say that just pointing to well this says eternal destruction so therefore that means you're going to be annihilated or or physically cut off um in terms of being killed physically and literally I, i'm not sure that's necessarily necessitated well that's uh, by Let's see if we can have an exercise in exegesis real quick. Uh, I know that you guys didn't prepare for this, but you guys are virtually scholars. Um, <laughs> hey, so, I, I'm a little more than yeah, virtually. You know I'm, I'm published <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> yeah, that's what, I was going to ask the same thing. I was going to ask something of Chris, if you don't mind, David. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, step if, he can, if he can show where destruction means cessation of life, I would like him to be able to share that. Yeah, and so that let me just dovetail that with from an exegetical um, point. Exactly. You know? So what I, what I was going to ask, and it goes well with what David uh, is thinking here too. Uh, if you guys could just pull up maybe your your what you think is your strongest passage. You both quote, quoted scripture in your rundowns. Pick up pick out one passage, uh, maybe two if we have time. Uh, and I would just love to hear you to exegete them for the audience so that we can see where the difference is lying. Whom do you want to go for? Or who do you want to go first? I'm going to have you go first because you are a scholar, not virtually <laughs> a scholar. <laughs> you don't need how, any how time about, to prepare for this. I'm a scholar in training. We'll, we'll put it that way. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Oh. <laughs> I am almost done with seminary and then I hope to go on to do a PhD. So uh, one day I can legitimately claim to be a scholar, I suppose. Yeah, you're more scholar than me. Um, so, uh, you know, everyone on this panel is probably more scholar than me. Uh, take it away, Chris, you, you start, give me your best. Um, I, I know that, I know that there's danger in this kind of proof texting, but I, I think that we all understand the constraints of debate and podcasts and time and that sort of thing. And so try to, try to pull up what you think is the clearest passage, uh, for your side. And I just want to hear you talk about that and some discussion on that. And then Dale, uh, we'll give you a chance to to do the same. I am not the kind of person who gravitates toward uh, or or seeks um, proof texts or or silver bullets. And so um, this isn't a question that I'm normally inclined to answer, but what I do, or at least not in the way that it was asked, but what I do think I can do is try and both give you what you're looking for and answer the question that David just asked me. Um, And I'll do that by having us walk through Matthew 10, 28. So, what Jesus says, according to the English Standard Version of Matthew ten twenty eight, is that he says, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, there are a number of things to keep in mind here. Firstly, the people that he's telling not to fear men because they can kill the body but not kill the soul – that is a fate that they are genuinely facing and that many of them did eventually face, the fate of being killed. And he's telling them, don't fear that fate because that's uh, an impermanent fate. Um, it, it's the death of your body, but it's not the death of your soul. And of course, following Jesus, these are people who believe in um, resurrection one day and unto eternal life. 
Rather, God, uh, uh, Jesus says, fear the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And the word that he uses here is apollomy, and I don't want to get too far into the Greek weeds because um, I, I think that would be somewhat unhelpful for your audience. But it's okay. suffice it, you're not gonna you're uh, not gonna leave Dale behind. So uh, our uh, audience is I'm pretty sure smart. I won't leave Dale behind. But <laughs> our, our audience is pretty smart. Well, you can I, you can I do it. Admit, I had to really bone up for this because Chris really knows his stuff biblically. Yeah. I, yeah, I I just want to say, Chris, I I love you and everything you say, but I, I hate you for making me do hours and hours. Of- <laughs> yeah. so, so look, the the research is done. You guys are smart. Our audience is smart too. A lot of us come from uh, a very strong Christian background. We've done a lot of study. You're not going to talk over our heads. Okay, that's fine. So, yeah. So, so, so what I was going to say was that in in Greek in Koine Greek, linguists discern between different voices and moods and tenses, and the word apollomy here um, is being used um, in the active voice rather than a passive voice. Um, passive would be was destroyed. Here it's destroy, so it's active. And it's transitive, meaning that one personal agent is doing it to another. Um, and it's about human beings, not about inanimate objects or about um, sheep or coins or, or oil or whatever. And whenever the word apollomy is used in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in the active voice and transitively to, to describe what one personal agent does to another, it consistently means slay or kill. So, for example, in Matthew 2.13, Herod wants to kill Apollomy, the baby Jesus. In Matthew 12.14, the Pharisees conspired together about how they might kill Jesus. That's uh, Apollomy. Matthew 21.41, Matthew 27.20, Mark 3.6, Mark 9.22, Luke 6.9, and others, and numerous places outside of the Synoptic Gospels, the word Apollomy, when used in this way to mean destroy, is, is sort of an emphatic way of saying kill. It's, it's slay. It's absolutely destroy. It's, it's, a, it's a very emphatic way of saying slay. So, what Jesus is saying here is, you, um, you disciples, you might die for your faith, but, on, but men are only killing your body. They can't kill your soul. Rather, fear God who can slay both soul and body in Gehenna. And to suggest that what he actually means is something like ruin or waste or lose would be to ignore how we do exegesis in any other context, because what we're what we should be doing is looking here for how the author and how the speaker use this word elsewhere in similar contexts and similar linguistic forms, as, you know, similar grammar and so forth. And when we do that, what we see is it consistently means slay or kill. And um, the opposite of that is make immortal so that they can live forever in hell. Um, so I think, and I'll be interested in hearing what Dale has to say, um, but I think that at the very least on the surface of it, that answers David's question. Here's an example yes. where destroy does mean to end life rather than to make immortal and live forever. Let me just ask a quick follow-up before I throw sure. it to Dale. So you're making a strong case on the word apology. Uh, isn't it possible that the one, uh, the anonymous writer, I know you don't think it's an anonymous writer, the one who wrote this down, uh, maybe, uh, maybe there was someone who listened to Jesus talk and, it, you know, they translated what Jesus said as a polyme as opposed to some other word that it could have been. Isn't it possible that you're, you're putting all of this weight on a single word might be, um, a, a little, a little dangerous in this context uh, because there, there are plenty of times when we can look at words and say, "Oh, well, actually, you know, we look at the context and that's that's a bad translation or that that um, 
you know, an, an unfortunate word choice uh, by the writer. Is, is, is that possible that this could be the case here? So a uh, twofold answer, two part answer to your question. I'll make it brief. Number one, I am because this is the question that this is what you asked me to do, focusing on one verse. But my reason for believing in conditionalism is because I see it on virtually every page of scripture. So I, I'm not hanging much on one word, even if it turned out that this argument were not very strong for Matthew twenty ten twenty eight, I'd still have a slew of others. Okay. But but secondly, and more importantly, you gotta keep in mind you're speaking to at least one Christian, but probably three, who have a very high view of scripture, a very um a, a very strong view of biblical inspiration. And as such, we don't think that uh, the doctrine of biblical inspiration is not the idea that God um, uh, inspired what Jesus said. The doctrine of biblical inspiration is that God inspired what has been written. So, even if Jesus was, say, speaking in Aramaic here rather than in Greek, the scriptures that God breathed through the author of this gospel are written in this Greek and with these Greek words. Right, but in the case in the case of Matthew in particular, I know that a lot of skeptics would say, look, this is the guy who uh, crossed up the words for virgin and young woman. Uh, no, and, that's and that's gonna... a ridiculous... <laughs> we, well, we'll have to have another episode on that. Sure, but I'm, I'm... So, even some Christians would... would um, Say that that's the case. I'm just saying you're gonna you're, you're hanging a lot of your argument over one word choice of a person who seems to play fast and loose with some Greek words. Well, so. but again, but but again, let me just reiterate that the Christian doctrine of biblical inspiration is not about what the people whose words are recorded said. It's about what is actually written. So even if Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is playing fast and loose with words, it's nevertheless his words as penned and as that we're reading that are that were divinely inspired. Gotcha. That's the doctrine of biblical inspiration. And so yes, I'm I'm hanging a lot on this one word when it comes to this specific verse, but I'm but that's what any Christian is going to do who holds to a high view of scripture. So we're going to give Dale a chance to respond to what you said, but first David, did you have any uh follow-up that you uh, took from that? No, no, that that answers, he answered my question. Okay, Dale, uh, what what is uh, what is Chris uh, getting wrong here? Um, so, so, yeah, so in the first place, I, I agree with Chris that, it, you know, using just one proof text, uh, you know, there's a whole lot that goes into that and, and that sort of thing. And in terms of this... We all, we all grant the grace that this it's not the most perfect thing, but what I want to give the listener uh, a chance to do is see how people actually are uh, interpreting the scriptures so that, they, so that they can see and at least understand the disagreements that are there. Um, gotcha. And we don't... We don't uh, in shows like this, neither party tends to show their work. Uh, and I'm a big fan of <laughs> show your work. Um, and so uh, Chris has uh, shown his work here, and I'm, I'm giving you a chance to say uh, yes, but uh, I think I think your exegesis is uh, maybe a little off because of. So uh, what do you what do you say to his exegesis there? So so yeah, so I, I think that when it comes to this Greek word apolomai, um, it, it is the case that in the Bible it has a wide variety of meanings and it doesn't necessarily always mean you're physically killed so for example there are verses that speak of the lost people um the sheep of israel who are still alive uh so this is matthew 10 verse 6 or chapter 15 verse 24 um 
uh, again, in Luke uh, chapter 15, verse 4. So there are different meanings that can be applied just to this Greek word, and you have to be careful about uh, how you interpret it in any given verse um, and use that in the full context of Scripture. So I, I think that the Scripture does define when it's talking about destruction or perishing or death. And, you know, in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, it kind of defines, look, it, the, uh, the people that do not obey the gospel of Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. And it goes on to qualify what that means, away from the presence of the Lord, so this separation and, and from his glory of his might. And and this coheres well with, um, Chris brought up Adam and Eve, you know, in the story of, of Genesis, when they uh, eat the fruit, in that day they shall surely die. And I think what that's saying is they they died spiritually that day. They were separated from God. And I know Chris has a, a counter for that. It, no, it's, it's saying, look, when they eat the apple, this this will happen. But uh, the thing is, in, in it's I think it's talking about um, spiritual death because you know, in dying you shall die is is what it says. It's indicating that Adam would merely. Uh, it's not saying that he would begin to die. It's the same word that's used in First Kings chapter two, verse forty-two. Um, for example, so yeah, um, I just don't think it's it's conclusive to be able to say one way or the other what Chris is is wanting to make it say. Can, can I push back just a little bit? Sure. Sure. Um, so I agree and, and admit it as much that at least I implied it that the word the Greek word apollomy has a range of meaning, but that's why I clarified that I'm not just talking about the lexeme, you know, the 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 uh, the word apollomy. We're also talking about the the form in which it's used here. When when the Greek word apollomy means to lose or to ruin or to waste, um, one of one of a number of things is true. One or more of a number of things is true. Either it's being used intransitively or passive. Uh, rather than an active voice and, and transitive, um, or it's referring to inanimate objects like coins or, or wineskins or food. Um, never, to my knowledge, in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, is apollomy used in the active voice, as it is here, transitively, as it is here, to describe what one person does to another, as it is here, and it doesn't mean to slay or kill. So, can you do you have any examples in the Synoptic Gospels where Apollomy in the active voice, transitively, to describe what one personal agent does to another, like the ones I mentioned, Matthew 2, 13, 12, 14, 21, 41, 27, 20, and so forth, where it doesn't mean to slay or kill? Not that I know of. So, I, okay. yeah, I, I don't, yeah. Okay. I, I appreciate that. All right. So, Dale, uh, your turn. Uh, what's What's your... Uh, strongest uh, one or two passages um, that that seem to be the clearest uh, that that state your position that that you can come up with. Um, yeah, so I think the the strongest ones uh, would be you know for example Revelation fourteen and twenty. Um, and uh, do you want me to read that? Or? Yes, yes, please. Uh, well, hold on, really quick. For the sake of time, can we pick just one or the other, fourteen or twenty? And if we're going to do two, then we can come back to twenty after we do fourteen, or vice versa. Uh, Revelation fourteen. I'll, I'll okay. Um, okay, so let me just pull it up here. Sorry. It's okay. 
someone help if someone else has it you can read it yeah i'll read it i'll, I'll read it while you pull it up okay. um this is verse 9 and i'll read through verse 11 of revelation 14 and again this is the esv it's the inspired version no i'm kidding um and another angel a third followed them saying with a loud voice if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand he also will drink the wine of god's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night these worshipers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name so let, let me just say bold move going revelation dale um take it away, take it away. <laughs> well yeah but i do think it uh, very strongly I, I get that it's apocalyptic uh language and, and that sort of thing but I do think it. we can, obviously apocalyptic language is meant to convey a message, so we are able to get something out of it. It's not just that, oh, it's you, you can't make heads or tails of anything in there. And there is this strong language. So, you know, eternal smoke, eternal uh, fire, the, the representing judgment. So I take, you know, things like fire and that sort of thing, not literally. I take it as symbolic as representing judgment in contrast to God. Jesus being the living water or something and you know there there's other verses that describe hell as being the outer darkness in contrast to God who is light so I take those elements as being symbolic but I think the underlying point that there is this eternal judgment that's going to be taking place and it's talking about people being tormented uh, and there's an idiom in there day and night it, it's it's ongoing and they're not going to be killed all at once or that sort of thing so yeah, I think that this is compelling evidence that there is an eternal conscious torment, however you define that torment, um, whether it's relational torment, like I believe, or if you want to go hyper-literal, like, like David Jay likes to believe or something. So, yeah, I think this is valid evidence to, to point to if, if I need a proof text. Well, let me, let me just uh, do a follow-up with you, just as I did with Chris. Uh, you acknowledged that you think that this, is, you, that this is definitely apocalyptic language, and some things are definitely figurative. But how do you uh, draw the line between what's figurative and what's literal? And uh, the, the, of the figures that are there, how do you determine what those figures Mean? I mean, how do you avoid the accusation of you're just kind of using this uh, passage as a Rorschach test and you're just reading into it whatever you want? Um, so, so yeah, I, I think you need to be careful and consult what the scholars say in terms of how you interpret this because there is a lot of figurative language in there and that sort of thing. But, yeah, from, from taking a holistic perspective, I think we can pretty much figure out that using things like the fire or, or eternal smoke is figurative because there are counter descriptions i mean hell's described elsewhere as, as being a dump it's described as outer darkness and stuff like that so um if you take these literally well they're contradictory as gary habermas um likes to argue and jp Moreland like to argue right but light fire produces light so how can there be total darkness or something like that um it's special fire it's it's god fire it's that's that <laughs> yeah, that's so ad hoc. I mean, um, that's not the natural reading. I, right, but from, but from the perspective of the skeptic, it's all ad hoc. So, I mean, it's just a matter of where you draw the line. Yeah, well, well, I guess it's it's you've got to do your best to 
say what you think the author of the text is actually saying. I, I honestly don't believe that the author of Revelation had in mind some kind of special non-light-producing fire. I, I don't think that's what he was saying. Oh, okay. But the, we also walked around with the belief that it was a special fire that would not consume us. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we believed that this fire was not the same fire as you get when you light a match here. Uh, but that said, uh, those are just my pushbacks, uh, commenters. Uh, you know what to do. Uh, Chris, what's wrong with Dale's position there? Well, I think what's wrong with Dale's position is that it fails to account for how this imagery is used elsewhere, both in the book of Revelation itself and elsewhere in Scripture. Um, Dale is right that this is apocalyptic literature, and what that means, and this is clear as you just read the book of Revelation, is that what John is seeing is in is very much consistent with similar visions all throughout Scripture, stretching as far back as Joseph when he's in prison and he interprets Pharaoh's cupbearers and baker's dreams. All throughout this biblical kind of visionary experience, the seer experiences or, or witness vision, sees in his vision amazing, perplexing, esoteric things happen, and then they or some other divine person like an angel interprets it for the seer or for his readers to explain what that imagery means. And we have to look at both those things, how that imagery is used elsewhere in the vision and how um, the vision is explained. So with that in mind, I want to look at three of these four elements in the imagery, the drinking of God's wrath, the um, torment and fire and sulfur, and the smoke of torment going up forever and ever. All three of those things are used later in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapters 18 and 19, to describe the fate of the mystery Babylon, this this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute riding on the back of this seven-headed, ten-horned beast. Um, she's got mystery Babylon written on her forehead. And um, throughout chapter 17, she is made to drink the um, wine of God's, or she, she's made to drink of God's wrath. She's said to be tormented in fire. And then at the beginning of chapter 18, a, a chorus cries out, hallelujah, the smoke from her rises up forever and ever. Sorry, I got my chapters mixed up. It's 18 and 19, not 17 and 18. So throughout 18, there's the torment and fire. There's the drinking God's wrath. And then at the beginning of chapter 19, there's um, hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. So you can see that all three of these same symbols are used to describe what's happening to this blood-drunk vampiric prostitute called Mystery Babylon. But at the end of chapter 18, a divine interpreter, an angel, tells John what all of this symbolism means. Verse 21 of chapter 18, that a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So you can see that what, what's going on here is the angel is telling John that this this harlot, Mystery Babylon, who symbolizes a city, her torment and fire, her being made to drink God's wrath and the smoke rising from her forever is symbolism communicating that the city she represents will be completely destroyed and found no longer. And this is consistent with how all this imagery is used outside of the book of Revelation as well. In the New Testament, um, all, always in the New Testament, drinking God's wrath refers to violence 
violent, shameful death like that of Jesus. Um, the language of fire and sulfur, sulfur specifically in both the Old Testament and in the intertestamental literature has to do with the kind of um, slaying that happened to the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19.24. Um, the language of rising smoke comes from Isaiah 34.10, in which smoke rises forever from the um, burning pitch of, of Edom when, when that city is judged. Uh, and, it, and it goes back even further to Genesis 19, when Abram goes out and looks at the plains after Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed, and he sees smoke rising from it. So what we see is that this imagery that that is sort of um, uh, uh, lumped together by John in Revelation 14, 9 to 11, is used later in Revelation and in the Old Testament, whence all and New Testament, um, f- whence all of this imagery comes, consistently means uh, re- communicates the destruction and death of people that are being punished by God, not their immortality and everlasting life. Okay. Um, Dale, did you want to come back on that? Yeah. So, so I, and, I, and so let, let me just say, uh, as we're getting close to wrap up, uh, would you guys, uh, like to just go into about 10 or 15 minutes worth of, um, conversation, unmoderated conversation, because I would love to see where this goes, uh, from here. Um, I can stick around a little longer. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, uh, Dale, go ahead and follow up, and you guys have a little bit of conversation. David, if you hear something that uh, makes you want to ask a question, jump in and ask a question. Uh, sure will. Okay. Uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I hear what Chris is saying. It, it's right. Uh, it is giving. It is talking about um, Babylon and that sort of thing. As uh, Again, it, that's another symbol. It's, it's representative. Uh, but I think, obviously, number one, we're talking about people right the people that reject god they are they represent babylon represents them and that sort of thing so we are talking about people and in revelation 14 it does describe it it sounds to me like it's talking about conscious torment as what's going to happen to this babylon and that sort of thing so i i don't think uh yeah i don't think i buy what chris is trying to say that it's it's just represents they're just gonna physically die um, Chris, what, mind if I ask? You said I misunderstood you before. So, what what exactly is your view? They they physically die, and that and that's it. Like, how how did their what happens to their souls when, once they're killed? If you don't mind me asking. Yeah, I mean, assuming that dualism, uh, anthropological dualism is true, that human beings have material bodies and immaterial souls that um, uh, continue to exist consciously after the first death, assuming that that's what the Bible teaches it is true, um, Jesus says that the kind of death that awaits the body will also await, also awaits the soul in Gehenna, unlike in the first death. Um, what For a body to die means to become inert, inactive, and inanimate, and presumably that would mean the same thing for the soul if it dies. But here's the thing: the soul isn't a composite substance like a human, like a material body is. Um, classically, theologians would say that the human soul is um, is simple and um, uh, and and uh, pure act, the way that the um, substance of God is simple and pure act. And if you take a, a simple, indivisible substance like a soul in classic theology, and you end its life, render it inert, inanimate, inactive, the way that a body is rendered inert, inanimate, inactive, and when it dies, then and that soul would it ceases to exist entirely because, by definition, it is pure act. It's not a sub. It's not a composite substance. So what I've said is that if dualism is true, in the first death the body dies, the soul continues to remain conscious um, until it's reunited with the resurrected body in resurrection. 
resurrection. But in the second death, both the body and the soul are slain, and because the soul isn't a composite uh, material substance like the body, when it loses its life, it ceases to be altogether. Gotcha. But now let me ask you a question, if you um, will um, entertain me a little bit. You said... It seems to be describing torment here. Well, I wholeheartedly agree. I, I'm on the record as saying I think that the picture in the book of Revelation, the picture John is seeing in his vision, is one of everlasting torment. But the question is what that means. And it's interesting because Mystery Babylon, this harlot riding on the beast in Revelation chapter 18, she's a conscious entity, a living person in the image. So torment is happening to her too. But what the but what the divine interpreter tells John is that her torment in the fire and the smoke rising from it forever symbolizes the destruction of the great city that she represents. So what I would like to know is why if when if if the harlot's torment symbolizes the destruction of the city, why should we assume that the torment of the beast worshippers in Revelation 14 symbolizes their everlasting life and immortality? Yeah. So yeah. So I, I think it, again, it comes down to what does it mean by destruction, and I, I don't think it. I interpret that the same way as you do. I, I do think that it's talking about ruin, everlasting ruin and shame, and that's what is being represented in these verses. Okay, but the the great city was composed of uh, citizens as well. It's not just talking about the um, buildings that made up Babylon, the great city. It's talking about its inhabitants as well. Do you, you know? So when 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 the angel tells him that a city will be thrown down with violence and be found no more, um, the sound of harpists and musicians, the flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. Do you think that although um, the great city will be reduced to rubble here, what the, the angel is actually telling John is that nevertheless its inhabitants will be made a mortal and live forever uh yeah I, I i do take that view okay well then there's there's where we're going to have this divide um when i see and, and I'm, I'm stating that not for you dale because uh, obviously you and i both know we've reached that divide but for the sake of um the, the listeners of skeptics and seekers or seekers and Sept- i forget which <laughs> which order it is i'm sorry sns um this is the divide i'm letting revelation 18 and 19 tell me what these symbols mean based on the divine interpreter's interpretation and i'm letting furthermore what these symbols refer to elsewhere in the bible tell me what the symbolism means in revelation 49 to 11 i think that what the other side of this debate not just dale but but even i before i became convinced of this view would have done this we're 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 insisting that we ought to be taking the language of Revelation 14, 9 to 11 as a fairly straightforward description of what's going to happen to the wicked, even though all of this evidence in elsewhere in the book of Revelation and outside of the Old Testament, or outside of the book of Revelation in both New and Old Testament, tells us that these symbols communicate the death and destruction of people, not their immortality and everlasting life and torment. And, and so I would posit... And, and I, of course, take this with a huge grain of salt, and I don't mean any offense by this, but I would posit that the conditionalist reading that I've here offered is one that applies standard accepted principles of hermeneutics, where we test scripture according to scripture, we look at how an author uses language and images elsewhere in his own literature, <coughs> excuse me, and in the literature upon which he draws, and uses that to determine what the um, writer is saying. Whereas I think the traditionalist side says, no, we've kind of got to put all that aside and just let the plain straight forward reading of Revelation 14, 9 to 11 tell us what's actually going to happen on the final day. And so listeners, I think, are going to have to decide which of those two approaches to Revelation um, is the most faithful to the text. Yeah, yeah, well said. Yeah, I think we 
we have reached that sort of divide and it is up to the, to the listener to kind of decide in that and yeah I, I plan to provide do you still put up uh, sources David uh, David J actually you're the one who used to put up sources <laughs> so, well, I still do exactly you, what I used to do <laughs> but I will be glad to post any sources that um, uh, you want to put up Gotcha. Yeah, because there, there's um, uh, obviously Chris's website is, is a great resource. He goes into a lot of details on a lot of the verses. I think a great counter resource is karm.org. Uh, I'm not sure if you, you've seen that, Chris, but he, he's got like. I, every, I've spent every... time at, at um, Matt Slick's house with him talking about this very topic. Amazing. Wow. Okay. Um, but yeah, he, he's got a very detailed. He goes into the Greek words, every verse that, that's brought up in that, and gives sort of a, a counter take. So yeah, I would just want to. Provide both sides for sources um, in case I'm not saying things well or something like that. So but. let me let's let's go ahead and wrap this up then and give the listeners a chance to have at it. I want to um, just start with uh, you, David Russell, since you've been uh, sure. the quietest here. Um, <laughs> so I, I've been listening to this uh, along with you. Now you um, kind of said early on that you had a somewhat uh, less formed view of hell. After this discussion, do you feel like your view is more formed, less formed, or the same? The same. And for the uh, and let me qualify that I've heard both of these arguments go back and forth, and I do think there's a stalemate here. And I do think you can look at the other position and say, yeah. Because it is very detailed as well. But then you look at Chris's position and you can say, yeah, I can see that as well. So I, I think I'm still kind of at where I'm, I'm still at, in the same place. Okay. And uh, you want to just uh, wrap up and remind the listener what that is. Your, the, the David Russell view of hell. And just kind of make it a closing statement. Who goes to hell? Why they go to hell? What is it? Where is it they're going? Um, just, just tell us. Uh, in in summary, what your position is. Okay. So it's been a while since I've actually done this because I've never been the one that, that really stays on the secondary issues like this. So I, I've always said, hey, guys, you know, when we get into this annihilationist debate and we get into, uh, you know, the eternal conscious torment, I always tell them, even my, my annihilationist friends, that, you know, I have a pers- more of personal reasons why I accept you know, the eternal uh, conscious torment view. And that's because I believe that, you know, we are made in God's image and he doesn't, you know, obliviate people. <laughs> so that's that's kind of where I am. And I'm more into the, the quarantine view. I, I, that That's a, a new uh, a word, as I would describe it. Um, but yeah, I think it's more, I, I do agree more with Dale. So that's kind of where I'm at, bud. Okay. Um, I will I will just chime in and say after listening to this discussion um, and looking at a lot of resources online, listening to a lot of Chris Date uh, over the last uh, few weeks and listening to him do his thing uh, live here, uh, I don't know. So uh, I mostly came into uh, this uh, discussion or at least into this research pretty sure about what the Bible said about hell. And now I think I'm in a place where uh, I just have to throw my hands up and say it, it could be either or, 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 or other options. I don't, I honestly don't know. 
Does, um, does that? Oh, sorry. Yeah. I, I was just gonna ask. Do, do you mind if I ask? So, so that's great. That's amazing. Um, would you remove, uh, with you know, withdraw some like a more your moral arguments then based on hell, since you don't know the nature, or or does it matter? Like, no matter who's right, whether I'm right or whether Chris is right, do you still find it immoral? Uh, I do find it immoral, but I would uh, I would certainly alter some of my arguments based on it. I wouldn't withdraw it. So I um, I think I think hell is an immoral idea. Almost no matter how you you uh, slice it, I've never heard of a view of hell that I thought was um, moral. But that said, uh, there are certainly differences in degree. I think between eternal conscious torture. Uh, and some lesser um, temporary torture. But I think that whether you say the torture is eternal or short, it's still immoral. So I'm, I'm, I'm not going to say, yeah, well, this hell with the short torture is good. Um, and in, in terms of your view, uh, Dale, where it's, it's quarantine... Well, it's the type of quarantine that seems fairly unnatural to me, though. And so it's still torture. I, I know that you call it torment, but uh, mental anguish inflicted upon someone forever is torture. Uh, and so I don't, I don't make an allowance for the idea that mental anguish is better than burning in fire. So that said, uh, what I... What I am unclear on at this point is what on earth the what on earth the um, thrust of scripture is saying and I, I think maybe my view is at different times in different places in scriptures with different authors uh, they may have meant different things um, I, I know that Chris uh, does not believe that uh, and you wouldn't believe that because you, you think that there's a, a consistency in the message but just looking at it as literature, I don't see that consistency. I don't know that there's any universal agreement, even among biblical writers. And uh, whatever they were saying, I don't, I don't even know what that is anymore. So I, I grant that all sides could, could be correct. <laughs> I mean, they can't all be correct at the same time, but uh, any, any one of the various sides could be correct. And I just have no idea. So... Uh, I'm, I'm certainly willing to make that uh, acknowledgement. Awesome. Yeah, that's, that, that toward truth, so that's great. Yeah. So, Dale, I'm going to actually save you for last. Chris, uh, go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, give us a couple of minutes. Um, you've heard Dale speak. You've heard uh, some of my pushback. Uh, you've heard uh, David Russell. Uh, at the end of the day, what do you want to leave our audience with uh, on this subject? Well, first of all, please do check out RethinkingHell.com and the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel. Um, I, I, I think that our weekly live stream um, is pretty helpful. We've been enjoying doing it. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback from it. And so hopefully people will check that out. Here's, here's though, what I would like to leave people with. And I want to leave a brief message for uh, the skeptics and for the seekers. Um, for the skeptics, I want to say uh, there's nothing... Uh, there's nothing more human than to know and to fear the fact, to lament the fact that we're one day going to die. 
Um, this has been the greatest human fear throughout human history. It continues to be, um, which is why uh, BBC recently, I think it was, did a YouTube series called Deathland, in which the host um, uh, did some surveys of people and interviews and stuff all about people's fear of death. It's why people are pouring countless thousands and tens and hundreds of thousands and millions of dollars into transhumanist efforts to achieve immortality, whether through cryogenic freezing or the digital transference of our consciousness into uh, computers or whether it's artificial bodies a la um, uh, what was that movie with Scarlett Johansson Ghost in the Shell you know we've got we as humans know we're going to die it, it terrifies us when we when we can't escape the thought of it by co- good company or by alcohol or by drugs or whatever and we know that we would we want to experience enduring life if not eternal life which is why we so desperately seek after immortality and the great thing about um Christ and about the Christian message is that that death doesn't have to be um, our final fate. We have an opportunity through the grace and kindness of God to receive immortality and everlasting life, and not the kind of immortality and everlasting life that technology promises, because all technology promises is everlasting life and immortality for people who can afford it. But for people who cannot, all, what's going to happen if, if technology ever gets that far is that the class divide is just going to be made all the more sharp. It's going to continue to be the haves and the have-nots, and the difference will be that the have-nots die off. But Christ offers eternal life and immortality without sin, without division, without jealousy, without um, hatred, without violence, and so on and so forth. And I think that's a glorious message, and I think it um, it resonates with the fears and the hopes that we as human beings naturally have. Now, to the seekers, I want to say... I I think that this discussion that um the that David Russell and Dale and I have had illustrates that this is a topic over which Christians can disagree and disagree strongly and yet still number 1 be united together in fellowship and, and ministry with one another because of our shared belief in the essentials of the Christian faith while being tolerant uh, and 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 respectful toward each other when it comes to our disagreements and this issue of hell is one of those cases where we can um, lo- we can agree to disagree and disagree lovingly, disagree agreeably. Um, too often amongst Christians, this is a topic, lamentably, that generates more heat than light. And too often, people on at least one side of the debate treat those on the other as if they're not Christians, can't be ministered with, can't be fellowshipped with. I can't count the number of times I've heard of people who are kicked out of churches, who are refused to be, they're not allowed to be students at seminaries, they're forced to resign from ministries just because they hold to an alternative alternative to the traditional view of hell. And I think that grieves the heart of God far more than it does grieve even my heart. And so I hope that the seekers listening to this will listen to this conversation that Dale and David and I have had and say, okay, maybe although I have this traditional view of hell and think scripture clearly teaches it, I can see why somebody who holds to a view like Chris might come away thinking that the scripture teaches it, and I can't think of any good reason why I should have to divide from them. Um, that's the message I would like seekers to get to come away with, is that this is something over which we as Christians can disagree, and yet still minister with one another, fellowship with one another, and take the saving gospel to a world, including you, David, that so desperately needs it if they are to escape um, the fate of death. Um, so, I guess I'll just leave the seekers and the skeptics with those two respective messages. Very good, and uh, we'll 
close with Dale. Uh, Dale, I just want to say, um, I want to say to all of my guests, thank you for uh, agreeing to be here. Thank you, David Russell. Thank you, uh, mm-hmm. Chris Date, for bringing uh, your your gravitas. <laughs> it's my pleasure and honor to the panel. And um, but that said, I think that Dale has had to cross more hurdles um, than anyone to be here on the show. And I'll I'll just leave it at that. And I want to uh, I want to acknowledge uh, Dale's valuable contribution, uh, his scholarship, and uh, his his commitment. Uh, to truth and to serving the audience uh, to the best that he can. And um, it's it's something that I have appreciated quietly, but not vocally enough. So uh, I, I want to take the, take the time to appreciate that vocally now. Dale, uh, your final thoughts? Goodness. Uh, well, yeah, thank you so much. I'm almost afraid to say anything. I'll ruin it after Chris's David. <laughs> you guys said so so eloquently. But um, yeah, no, thank you guys so much. I, I really enjoyed this conversation. As I said, I, I tried to come come in with an open mind to learn from our other guests as, as well. Um, I don't want to be dogmatic. I think that Chris, um, I disagree with him, but he has a reasonable position that needs to be taken seriously and and considered. Um, I, I, I know I was trying to approach it philosophically as well, and I was trying to come up with philosophical arguments because that's where I'm most at home. I don't know the Kone Greek and, and that. I need to look that stuff up, but um, I couldn't. Um, I could refute. I came up with two arguments, and I could refute both of them. So. Yeah, it seems like they're they're almost on par on that level, and it really boils down to well, what does the biblical data data say? And on that front, uh, Christians can disagree that this this is an important matter, but it's not an essential matter. It's not a part of what I call Christianity proper, or C.S. Lewis calls mere Christianity. It, it's not essential. We, there is room to respectfully disagree, and you know that's that's part of the beauty, as as I see it. And, I think Chris said something similar that there's room to, I mean, there's so much to learn about God. People have different opinions. We can wrestle with each other and, and learn from each other and, you know, learn different aspects or, or facets of the amazing God that we all believe in. So, yeah, I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me on. Great. And uh, I would just say that uh, to the skeptics out there listening uh, who are, uh, disappointed at me for not asking some <laughs> of the obvious questions and making the skeptical case. I was not here to make the skeptical case today. Uh, I was here to uh, allow three Christians uh, to give us their perspective on hell. Uh, and I hope that uh, you have learned something about the perspective of hell. Don't worry, I'll be there to provide some skeptical rebuttal in the comments. Along with you, Uh, you can join me uh, in that endeavor at skepticsandseekers.squarespace.com. You can write me directly, skepticsandseekers at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for being with us next week. I have no idea, but it's going to be great. Bye-bye now.